everybody, let's go for a blast in our cars. Oh yeah, I forgot, we can't because there's no damn fuel. Must be another witty 924. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show, and yes, we're into October, month 10, already. Not long now till uh, the jingling of bells. Oh yeah. (laughs) And uh, many of you, I'm sure, will be frustrated with what is going on right now in the UK, uh, especially around fuel. It's been a tough uh, last few weeks. Many of us are trying to really put a bit of uh, fuel into the car that allows us ultimately to get around and do the things we need to do even if um, that means just going to the shops and maybe buying some food. You know, all of those good things that uh, we have to do in uh, in our lives. And uh, fuel sits at the heart of it. And when, yeah, when these things don't run as expected, then, yeah, everything sort of comes to a stop. It makes you realise, actually, how much everything is really on a shoestring, you know, held together very, very uh, finely by all of these different things that if one fails, then it really just has this huge knock-on effect. And uh, fuel and the movement of of people around a country is, is so dependent on fuel. And uh, yeah, it, it's really been highlighted these last few weeks in the UK. So uh, if you're sat in a queue right now, I, f- I feel the pain. It's, um, it's not fun and... Uh, to, to add to that, if you do get to a fuel station that does happen to have fuel, they're limiting mainly uh, the the fuel that you're allowed to about 20 or 30 pounds worth. So it's not much. It's not much at all. So, yeah, just it's, it's, it's a strange one. It's a strange one. And it does bring up the sort of argument of fuel in general, doesn't it? I think there's a lot of... There's a lot of... Um, targets right now that are in place uh, across various countries around the world but if I just look through the lens of the UK right now by 2030 the government wants to stop the sale of diesel and petrol engines so you know this is literally almost eight years away that it's not long in the grand scheme of things when you think about the cycles of R&D on a car from when it's concept to launch and then how long a production cycle stays in play i think the german cars tend to run what six to seven years on a particular model and they might have one or two iterations of that model which generally is a facelift or a tweak here and a tweak there so when you think about that that's literally one maybe two models at best between now and when you know you you have to rip out the combustion engine and yeah think about what it might be powered by now I know I've touched on this a little bit about fuels. I think there's a there's a couple of uh, elements to this, which is the the powertrain and the fuel you use. So, I think it's 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 very interesting times. I think uh, in many respects, petrol and how much we have ultimately built our world around it, uh, how dependent we are on it. It really is sort of the industrial lifeblood of of every sort of yeah working industry uh, across the world and. Uh, to, to change that motion which has been in play, you know, over a hundred years, hasn't it? Everything has been built around it. 
infrastructures. It's it's now that moment in time where we've got to sort of try and flip it, and and we know it it's going to be a tough one. So, what does it really mean if you know you take out the combustion engine and take away fuel, and then suddenly everyone has electric? You know, will we have times where there's not enough electricity being produced so we can't all charge our cars. I'm sure that news headline is but a decade away. And <laughs> yes, you know, the the uh, uh, the media uh, have no doubt a, a bit of fun with that as well, won't they? Because uh, I think they're partly to blame, aren't they, the media? I think they cause a bit of panic and angst amongst the, the general population because, you know, it's classified as a good story. So let's up the ante and push out this shortage of fuel panic and you know and then people do it's it's literally I, I feel two weeks ago if that bp came out with an announcement at lunchtime i was eating a sandwich watching the news uh, on a break from work and it literally was a, a very short uh, snippet that came in saying bp have said or oh, a few of their stations don't have fuel that was it it, it was sort of a side story Within 24 hours, it was across all the press saying the UK has no fuel. I mean, it was it was insane how that just, you know, that domino effect just came into play and took over all, all the stories. And then that ultimately makes people panic. And thus you have, you know, a race to the station and everyone starts buying fuel thinking... I'm not going to be able to get fuel ever again in my life. <laughs> it's just like, what? I don't know. We are uh, strange creatures sometimes, aren't we? But um, yeah, so that that is um, the, the backdrop right now that's sort of uh, a bit of the craze in the UK. And uh, as you can imagine, that has caused all sorts of stories now around supply and demand in, in all categories. I mean, literally the craziness of this all is this morning on the news, there was an interview with someone who runs a clown company in Ireland, yeah, a clown company, who said there is a shortage of clowns. <laughs> I mean, if the news are this desperate to, to unpick every shortage across every industry in every walk of life, then I, yeah, I don't know where this goes. It's it's all a bit mad. It. Uh, Mad and amusing, maybe at the same time, hey? But anyway, that said, I think one of the things that really are quite... Um, or one of the topics that is really interesting on the supply and demand, and I have I literally touched on it, I think, a couple of episodes ago, and this was the whole thing around the semiconductors, which has stalled a lot of the, the new car productions in virtually all of the, the major brands uh, across the world that some have been okay when you look at some of the asian brands because they've basically got companies that they've stockpiled and make their own chips and and in some cases so the the semiconductor market which was ultimately hit by the pandemic like so many others in manufacturing and you know digging this stuff out the ground and you know making these chips and all of that good stuff has this knock-on effect for all the other industries that rely on them, and uh, the car industry is is no different. And cars of of today have got more technology and you know, sensors and all of this stuff on them than ever before. That it uh, it relies so much on you know the the heartbeat of chips and you know ECUs and all of that good stuff to control it all in in the right way. So if uh, 
if you can't get them, your car doesn't work. It's as simple as that. And what's interesting about the new car market is that the production of all sorts of cars, small up to vans, has in in many ways slowed down, but in, in some cases has bizarrely carried on with the view that they're going to deliver these new cars to dealers and then retrofit a lot of the, I guess, semiconductor sensing, I don't know, applications that are are required to make the the vehicle work after the fact. Now that to me is fine. It it, it means production lines keep running and it means they deliver them. The financial aspects of that's quite interesting because I'm sure, and someone can keep me honest on this, is that when a car leaves the factory and arrives at the dealer, the dealer sort of takes ownership not just from a perspective of the physicality of the car, but also the financial aspects of the car. Someone can keep me true on that if uh, if it's if it's different. So, if the manufacturer is saying, "Hey, here's the car; it's built. You, you've got to take it because the production line's running," but know this that you can't give the car ultimately to the customer until the retrofit of the semiconductor sensors, units, whatever it is that you have to fit with these bits in them then the dealer is now accountable for that unit on their forecourt or in their showroom and has to wait for when these component pieces are are, are likely to be ready. Now, there's talk of six months, 12 months, 18 months backlog on some of this stuff. And yeah, what, what does a dealer do? Does it reject the new car and say no um there's interestingly actually there's a couple of youtubes floating uh, youtubers who have who've been down to their local dealers to to check out what the stocks look like it's actually quite it's quite interesting if you get down if you manage to get down to to some of your new car dealers one in particular that stood out for me actually was a, a porsche dealer in in oz and uh he he went round and it was it was almost like walking back in time because the dealership had all of these 20 year old Porsches in in the uh, dealer so it was it was like going back to <laughs> it was a bizarrest yeah it was, it was super cool but it was very bizarre you had like Porsche 91 classics they had then the 996 uh cars in there they had 986s some 987s they had a 997 and it was just bizarre because they just, yeah, they, they were basically trying to put whatever they had or could get their hands on into the showroom. And then right in the corner by itself, lonely as can be, was a brand new Porsche McCann. The guy said, yeah, this has just been delivered from Porsche, but it, it can't go to the customer because it's got none of the sensors or semiconductor component pieces that's required for it to run and, and be used. So when they get them they have to retrofit them so imagine the the number of units that let's just take the vw group as an example that would potentially be delivered in that way where they say hey production lines are running outgo cars land on dealers sit there and let's wait let's wait to see when these semiconductors arrive and then we got this really interesting debacle of dealers now being accountable for fitting these, these parts that generally are a part of the build and production process as the car gets put together on the production line. I just have this really worrying 
thought in the back of my mind, and this is no disrespect to, you know, the very skilled technicians that work at these dealers, but I have this worrying view in my mind that we fast forward five, six years and people will be saying, oh, don't buy a car from 2021 or 2022. Because you know what happens with things that are not in the plan of of proper production and there's those retrofits. We know what happens if you have large amounts of retrofits like recalls or, and stuff like that. Sometimes these things can go amiss and it depends on the, the amount that has to be done, the time frames. Because as, as you know, all dealerships, all technicians are, are billed on time and you know the faster you do things, potentially the better bonus, all of this good stuff. So if, if people get pushed down that route to get things done quickly, at speed, I'm just saying, you know, we're only human at the end of the day, and sometimes these things can go amiss. And uh, I just think with cars, how advanced they are today with all of this stuff, it's just, yeah, it's an interesting moment in time where I just think, I, I wonder what will be, yeah, the news headlines around these production cars of uh, 2021, 2022. Yeah, anyway... Um, so I think that that's that's an interesting the other the other aspect to this whole supply and demand piece around new cars is it ultimately has a huge knock on effect with the the downstream. So yeah, I'm sure everyone's aware that used car prices have been going up dramatically. I uh, I've been quite keeping quite a close eye on this sort of unfolding of events and in the last 6 months in the UK, uh, I know the US are going through similar changes as well. But uh, the UK has seen about a 20% increase in used cars in, in prices. So it's it's an interesting one because people are always looking for, you know, good deals. But suddenly if you were looking for a car six months ago and you came back to the same model or, or the same range and you look now, you, you're going to see prices have probably creeped up by about 20%. So... It's it's an interesting one. For the first time, used cars are they're going up, <laughs> and for all used cars, not you know, not just the specialist ones or the collector ones or the limited run ones. You know, it, it's it's all of them, and it it's been driven by the fact that, that there is not enough new cars. And if you think about, I, I think it's a, it's a huge number. I don't know, maybe eighty ninety percent of new cars are bought on finance. You get these finance deals that are two, three, four, five years, and those that are coming to the end of a two-year, a three-year, a four-year, who would switch just for the next new car, you know, new payment, new car, that that car then goes into the system, the leasing system of two-car auction, dealers get to maybe, you know, buy that car, it becomes used car, uh, stock and, and off it goes and the cycle continues rinse and repeat there isn't this large amount of of lease cars coming back into the system people are in this predicament or, or scenario where they're thinking actually I'll, I'll probably extend my lease and maybe keep it for another two years or um, if I do come out, out of this lease I might just hand the car back walk away and then go for a used car. So there's, and I'm sure there's lots of other different scenarios happening. The the ultimate effect is that demand for used cars is is strong, and and so are prices. So 
this is a, a little bit of a dilemma for for those that are in that sort of financial loop on on the new car scene. For those that have sort of stuck it out with used cars and, and haven't taken the new car scene, then, you know, for, for anyone who, who has a used car and wants to sort of move on every, I don't know, two, three, four years, then it's quite an interesting market for you to, to maybe get money for it that you, you didn't quite expect you would get. Um, certainly f- from my perspective with the couple of cars that I'm selling right now, yeah, it's interesting. There's there's a lot of demand. I have to say I've had a lot of inquiries on the cars that I got for sale, but people are still thinking in the sort of pre-pandemic mode, I guess is is the best way to put it, in thinking that they can sort of arrive at the door and just say, I want three grand off or two grand off. Um, and you're just like, yeah, it's not. it's just not going to be the case. And you're not going to find that that type of discounting really anywhere uh, currently in the UK. Just it's because there there isn't the amount of cars. I mean, you you only have to go to um, like I say, it all sorts of starts at the top and rolls down. You only have to go to the new car websites and realise there's very little offers. I mean, some of the offers they were doing pre-pandemic were awesome. I mean, you could hop into virtually any type of car for a very small amount up front if not at all um small payments big balloons and yeah you could have a, a whale of a time just getting into to really good interesting cars and uh that sort of has gone by the wayside because the manufacturers don't need to do it because they they can't they can't supply the the demand so it's uh it's an interesting one i think uh yeah it, it's it's gonna it's probably another i would say Given a guess, maybe twelve to eighteen months, this this cycle is going to continue until production lines get to the sort of capacities that we're used to. I think it's going to be a bit of a long haul. The added pressures of of component pieces not being a part of the production line is is also uh, yeah just other factors that are in the mix. What does this really mean for for manufacturers? I think it's quite interesting when you look at some of the news around uh, and I'm going to I'm going to stick to the VW group because ultimately like you know big fan of Porsche and Audis and these guys are sort of all part of that and it it's an interesting one if you look at some of the the stories around Audi and and Porsche themselves they're not doing too bad. It's strange. I think they've enjoyed sort of good uplifting profits because of the more high-end Porsches and Audis that they've sold and dare I say the introduction of some of the the electric vehicles that they've brought to market have really been well received and you know a lot of people are financing these and, and taking a, a punt I think uh, and they're not cheap are they I mean you know the, the Taycan and the new Audi you know GT they're all up around what 120 £120,000, 130s, 140s when you start adding stuff to them. So they're big, big uh, lumps of cash. And it's uh, it's just interesting. The, those cars have really cemented a lot of the profit lines for, for the group. And uh, I think even when you look at Tesla, I mean, they're on the back of what uh, is, is said to about eight straight quarters of, of profit. The margins in that profit are insane. So it, it does... It does show you that although electrification of cars is is still very much, I would say, in its infancy, even though it's been around, let's say, a decade, you know, with some of the cars, it's still, compared to the 
industrialization of of fuel petrol that's been used for you know over a hundred years or so it, it's still sort of in its infancy and yet it's driving a huge amount of uh, profit covering these these companies or, or cementing these cover you know these companies for uh, you know massive of uh, potential for the future so i think that it's it's an interesting one I, I still think the debate is out on whether electric cars in terms of the fuel being the battery is is the right thing long term i think it still plays in the same field as as petroleum and oil because you know these are resources you've got to obtain from digging the land <laughs> and you've got to spend an, an awful amount of uh, time and effort getting it and extracting it and then putting it through the whole production process and there is only a fine amount of this stuff on the planet and you know that to me is it's still sort of the backdrop isn't it i think there's still there's still another discussion and debate to be had about what really becomes the the real fuel that we need to to power the next 100 200 300 years of the planet i mean it's uh, and and do it in a way that's that's far more green across the spectrum of the you know the circular economy so when it gets taken from the land or or taken from the planet and it goes through the whole cycle of manufacturing use recycling disposal whatever it might be it, it's got to be as eco-friendly as possible and i don't think that lithium out of the ground and, and oil have been the long-term answers yes they'll have a, a short time in in our history no doubt but i think longer term there's there's still a big debate and discussion to be had there i think the use of electric motors you know as the powertrain i think is a, is a very valid one to me that makes complete sense when you think about the efficiencies of an electric motor versus a combustion engine it yeah it, it's it just makes sense doesn't it i mean you you only have to think about the servicing <laughs> aspect of those it really just there is no sort of comparison you know engines need to be well maintained there is a lot of fluids that need to be used to make these things work at some sort of optimal i mean dare say optimal because you know engines just let out a huge amount of heat which is really wasted energy in in the grand scheme of things so you know whether it's fluids parts that have to be made in you know all types of different materials for these things to work it's comparison to the electric motor it it doesn't really fare and uh it's hard to say really because you know we've all sort of grown up with the uh, you know the the noises and the the smells of the combustion engine and it's sort of uh greatness almost built into society isn't it it's it's quite fascinating but i think from that perspective the electric motor and all the development to to get them to where they are today and i'm sure they'll just keep getting better and better and better just like combustion engines are you know the ones that were built in the 1900s to the ones that are today are just light years apart and the efficiencies are just every year iterate 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 are you know to to a point of you know perfection based on that that type of design so i think the electric motor will go through exactly the same it's all about the fuel it's all about what uh, what gives it its drive i think that one is is a big debate ahead so with all of that in the back of our minds let's move on to a little bit of light news and i think one of the big highlights that have really come out of porsche is the next iteration of the gt3 rs 
and this one based on the 992, which is the current model. Now, if you've seen pictures of this current model, you would have seen that the GT department has gone to town on this in a big way. It really does look the part. I think the RS models in general tend to have all the right uh, wings and tings, as they say, but this one really has got a wing worth shouting about. It really does set off the car very very aggressively likewise the the front end and the wings the scoops ab above the wheel which is definitely a carry-on from the previous 991 version of the rs has very similar but almost on steroids is probably the best way to describe it and also the back of the wing as it joins the front of the door there's a big step out there so yeah the, the aesthetics of the car itself really do I, I think you know set it apart from all the other 911s by some country mile it really does uh, look the part it uh, it's been seen testing around the the usual suspect places like Nürburgring and so on so uh, yeah check it out it, it's it's an interesting one the other the other one to just mention in this same breath is there is the potential return of the sport classic version on the 992 as well I think the 997 was the last one that had I think they call it a sport classic which has the ducktail and they did a limited run on the 997 which uh, I think they're crazy prices now I think they're you know way 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 up 150 plus maybe more i don't know someone can keep me real on that but uh if uh if that's the case the version of the ducktail called the sport classic which they're looking to produce on the 992 again looks very very cool and uh they just get it right don't they i mean i, I guess if you've been playing with a, a model for 50 60 years then you know everything you can do and the boundaries you can push to just make that image slightly better each and every time. So yeah, they both look awesome. Right, so that's been today's show. I hope you've enjoyed my little bit of a rant, maybe. I don't know. Was it a rant? Maybe not. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just sort of unpicking the current scenario that we find ourselves in is an interesting topic of debate. So I hope you've enjoyed it. And what I am looking to do actually on the next episode is get a couple of good friends on and talk about cars from each decade. So I'm thinking sort of starting maybe 60s, 70s through 80s, 90s, noughties to the current day and really just unpicking our thoughts around each of those decades and really finding our favourite cars and, and those cars that all of us should at least get to try or have a try in before we're not allowed to drive cars well that's another topic isn't it what if it all goes autonomous and you're not even allowed to drive oh too too cold to think about anyway um thanks for joining been great having you along with this don't forget to follow me on youtube and instagram where some of the stuff i'm doing on my cars i showcase there so thanks again for all the support and the next podcast will be along very soon <laughs>